Chapter Forty of the Mayor of Casterbridge. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mayor of Casterbridge by Thomas Hardy. Chapter Forty. Long before this time, Henchard, weary of his ruminations on the bridge, had repaired towards the town. When he stood at the bottom of the street, a procession burst upon his view, in the act of turning out of an alley just above him. The lanterns, horns, and multitudes startled him. He saw the mounted images, and knew what it all meant. They crossed the way, entered another street, and disappeared. He turned back a few steps, and was lost in grave reflection, finally wending his way homeward by the obscure riverside path. Unable to rest there, he went to his stepdaughter's lodging, and was told that Elizabeth Jane had gone to Mr. Farfrae's. Like one acting in obedience to a charm, and with a nameless apprehension, he followed in the same direction in the hope of meeting her, the roisterers having vanished. Disappointed in this, he gave the gentlest of pulls to the door-bell, and then alert particulars of what had occurred, together with the doctor's imperative orders that Farfrae should be brought home, and how they had set out to meet him on the Budmouth Road. "'But he has gone to Melstock and Weatherbury!' exclaimed Henchard, now unspeakably grieved. "'Not Budmouth way at all!' But, alas, for Henchard he had lost his good name. They would not believe him, taking his words but as the frothy utterances of recklessness. Though Lucetta's life seemed at that moment to depend upon her husband's return, she being in great mental agony lest he should never know the unexaggerated truth of her past relations with Henchard, no messenger was dispatched towards Weatherbury. Henchard, in a state of bitter anxiety and contrition, determined to seek Farfrae himself. To this end he hastened down the town, ran along the eastern road over Durnover Moor, up the hill beyond, and thus onward in the moderate darkness of this spring night, till he had reached a second and almost a third hill about three miles distant. In Yalbury Bottom or Plain, at the foot of the hill, he listened. At first nothing beyond his own heart-throbs was to be heard, but the slow wind making its moan among the masses of spruce and larch of Yalbury wood which clothed the heights on either hand. But presently there came the sound of light wheels wetting their fellows against the newly stoned patches of road, accompanied by the distant glimmer of lights. He knew it was Farfrae's gig descending the hill from an indescribable personality in its noise, the vehicle having been his own till bought by the Scotchman at the sale of his effects. Henchard thereupon retraced his steps along Yalbury Plain, the gig coming up with him as its driver slackened speed between two plantations. It was a point in the highway near which the road to Melstock branched off from the homeward direction. By diverging to that village, as he had intended to do, Farfrae might probably delay his return by a couple of hours. It soon appeared that his intention was to do so still, the light swerving towards Cuckoo Lane, the by-road aforesaid. Farfrae's off-gig lamp flashed in Henchard's face. At the same time Farfrae discerned his late antagonist. "'Farfrae! Mr. Farfrae!' cried the breathless Henchard, holding up his hand. Farfrae allowed the horse to turn several steps into the branch lane before he pulled up. He then drew rein and said, "'Yes?' over his shoulder, as one would towards a pronounced enemy. "'Come back to Casterbridge at once,' Henchard said. "'There's something wrong at your house requiring your return.' I've run all the way here on purpose to tell ye." Farfrae was silent, and at his silence Henchard's soul sank within him. Why had he not, before this, thought of what was only too obvious? 
He, who four hours earlier had enticed Farfrae into a deadly wrestle, stood now in the darkness of late night-time on a lonely road, inviting him to come a particular way where an assailant might have confederates, instead of going his purposed way where there might be a better opportunity of guarding himself from attack. Henchard could almost feel this view of things in course of passage through Farfrae's mind. "'I have to go to Melstock,' said Farfrae coldly, as he loosened his reins to move on. "'But,' implored Henchard, "'the matter is more serious than your business at Melstock. "'It is your wife. "'She is ill. "'I can tell you particulars as we go along.' The very agitation and abruptness of Henchard increased Farfrae's suspicion that this was a ruse to decoy him on to the next wood, where might be effectually compassed what, from policy or want of nerve, Henchard had failed to do earlier in the day. He started the horse. "'I know what you think.' deprecated Henchard, running after, almost bowed down with despair as he perceived the image of unscrupulous villainy that he assumed in his former friend's eyes. "'But I am not what you think,' he cried hoarsely. "'Believe me, Farfrae, I have come entirely on your own and your wife's account. She is in danger. I know no more, and they want you to come. Your man has gone the other way in a mistake. Oh, Farfrae, don't mistrust me. I am a wretched man, but my heart is true to you still.' Farfrae, however, did distrust him utterly. He knew his wife was with child, but he had left her not long ago in perfect health, and Henchard's treachery was more credible than his story. He had, in his time, heard bitter ironies from Henchard's lips, and there might be ironies now. He quickened the horse's pace, and had soon risen into the high country lying between there and Melstock, Henchard's spasmodic run after him lending yet more substance to his thought of evil purposes. The gig and its driver lessened against the sky in Henchard's eyes. His exertions for Farfrae's good had been in vain. Over this repentant sinner, at least, there was to be no joy in heaven. He cursed himself like a less scrupulous Job, as a vehement man will do when he loses self-respect, the last mental prop under poverty. To this he had come after a time of emotional darkness of which the adjoining woodland shade afforded inadequate illustration. Presently he began to walk back again along the way by which he had arrived. Farfrae should at all events have no reason for delay upon the road by seeing him there when he took his journey homeward later on. Arriving at Casterbridge, Henchard went again to Farfrae's house to make inquiries. As soon as the door opened, anxious faces confronted his from the staircase, hall, and landing, and they all said in grievous disappointment, "'Oh, it is not he!' The manservant, finding his mistake, had long since returned, and all hopes had centred upon Henchard. "'But haven't you found him?' said the doctor. "'Yes. I cannot tell he,' Henchard replied, as he sank down on a chair within the entrance. "'He can't be home for two hours.' "'Huh,' said the surgeon, returning upstairs. "'How is she?' asked Henchard of Elizabeth, who formed one of the group. "'In great danger, father.' Her anxiety to see her husband makes her fearfully restless. Poor woman, I fear they have killed her. Henchard regarded the sympathetic speaker for a few instants, as if she struck him in a new light. Then, without further remark, went out of the door and onward to his lonely cottage. So much for man's rivalry, he thought. Death was to have the oyster, and Farfrae and himself the shells. But about Elizabeth Jane, in the midst of his gloom she seemed to him as a pinpoint of light. He had liked the look on her face as she answered him from the stairs. There had been affection in it, and above all things what he desired now was affection from anything that was good and pure. She was not his own, 
yet for the first time he had a faint dream that he might get to like her as his own, if she would only continue to love him. Jopp was just going to bed when Henchard got home. As the latter entered the door, Jopp said, "'This is rather bad about Mrs. Farfrae's illness.' "'Yes,' said Henchard shortly, though little dreaming of Jopp's complicity in the night's harlequinade, and raising his eyes just sufficiently to observe that Jopp's face was lined with anxiety. "'Somebody has called for you,' continued Jopp, when Henchard was shutting himself into his own apartment. "'A kind of traveller or sea-captain of some sort.' "'Oh! Who could he be?' "'He seemed a well-be-doing man, had grey hair and a broadish face, but he gave no name and no message. Nor do I give him any attention.' And saying this, Henchard closed his door. The divergence to Mellstock delayed Farfrae's return very nearly the two hours of Henchard's estimate. Among the other urgent reasons for his presence had been the need of his authority to send to Budmouth for a second physician— and when at length Farfrae did come back, he was in a state bordering on distraction at his misconception of Henchard's motives. A messenger was dispatched to Budmouth late as it had grown. The night wore on, and the other doctor came in the small hours. Lucetta had been much soothed by Donald's arrival. He seldom or never left her side. And when, immediately after his entry, she had tried to lisp out to him the secret which so oppressed her, he checked her feeble words, lest talking should be dangerous assuring her there was plenty of time to tell him everything. Up to this time he knew nothing of the Skimmington ride. The dangerous illness and miscarriage of Mrs. Farfrae was soon rumoured through the town, and an apprehensive guess having been given as to its cause by the leaders in the exploit, compunction and fear threw a dead silence over all particulars of their orgy, while those immediately around Lucetta would not venture to add to her husband's distress by alluding to the subject. What and how much Farfrae's wife ultimately explained to him of her past entanglement with Henchard when they were alone in the solitude of that sad night cannot be told. That she informed him of the bare facts of her peculiar intimacy with the corn merchant became plain from Farfrae's own statements. But in respect of her subsequent conduct, her motive in coming to Casterbridge to unite herself with Henchard, her assumed justification in abandoning him when she discovered reasons for fearing him, though in truth her inconsequent passion for another man at first sight had most to do with that abandonment, her method of reconciling to her conscience a marriage with the second when she was in a measure committed to the first, to what extent she spoke of these things remained Farfrae's secret alone. Besides the watchman who called the hours and weather in Casterbridge that night, there walked a figure up and down Corn Street hardly less frequently. It was Henchard's whose retiring to rest had proved itself a futility as soon as attempted, and he gave it up to go hither and thither, and make inquiries about the patient every now and then. He called as much on Farfrae's account as on Lucetta's, and on Elizabeth Jane's even more than on either's. Shorn one by one of all other interests, his life seemed centering on the personality of the stepdaughter, whose presence but recently he could not endure. To see her on each occasion of his inquiry at Lucetta's was a comfort to him. The last of his calls was made about four o'clock in the morning, in the steely light of dawn. Lucifer was fading into day across Durnover Moor. The sparrows were just alighting into the street, and the hens had begun to cackle from the outhouses. When within a few yards of Farfrae's he saw the door gently opened, and a servant raised her hand to the knocker to untie the piece of cloth which had muffled it. He went across, the sparrows in his way scarcely flying up from the road litter, 
So little did they believe in human aggression at so early a time. "'Why do you take off that?' said Henchard. She turned in some surprise at his presence, and did not answer for an instant or two. Recognizing him, she said, "'Because they may knock as loud as they will. She will never hear it any more.'" End of chapter 40